you know, there are really good times to be different. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. If there is a medical emergency and you happen to be a nurse or a doctor, it's a really good time for you to indicate so. You don't want to just, no, I'm, I'm just like everybody else. If you have the, the education and the training that sets you apart and there's some need for somebody's health and well-being, what a great time to say, I'm different. I'm a nurse. I'm a doctor. Or how about if you're in a, a, a commercial airplane and both pilots, the pilot and the co-pilot, uh, have food poisoning. Sounds like a really good story for a movie, doesn't it? Uh, and, and you happen to be a commercial pilot yourself. It'd be a really good time to raise your hand and say, I, I'm a little different. I, I'm also a pilot doesn't have to just be times where a certain kind of education uh, is required. It could be that you're among people that are experiencing some level of despair. And maybe you're wired as an encourager, not just the pat on the back encourager, but the kind of person that comes alongside somebody else. What a great time to come forward, to acknowledge your difference in order to be a gift to someone around you. Well, it so happens that in a world like ours, a world that um, is so often out of step with God, in a world where so many people do not know the God of the Bible, that Christians are in a prime position, in fact, are called to say, I'm different. I know something. I know someone. I, I know the way. I know the path. Let me share with you in my, in my words and my actions, let me share with you eternity, eternal life in and through Jesus Christ. We've been going through Second Peter over these past weeks, and it was a letter that was written to people that were uh, confessing Christ, and yet in their midst there were these false teachers that were saying, you know what, let's not be different the way Jesus said. Let's go ahead and, and, and pursue our own desires for our ends. And so they were providing false teaching, and Second Peter is written to call them back to the way of Christ, to embrace their differences in this world. Well, we've talked about embracing our different uh, being. That we are called to embrace our different faith, our different calling, our different word, our different path, our different end. That as followers of Christ, we have a different faith, a different calling, a different word, a different path, a different end. And when we know these things, when we learn these things, when we grow in these things, that we can represent this in the world. In fact, it is the best life ever. Significant for ourselves, but significant for those around us. Today we're going to look at embracing our different priorities. Our different priorities. We're going to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and 18. And encourage you to open up your Bible and, uh, to that passage. We'll put the text on the screen as well. Let us hear the word of God. 
Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, this reference to the previous passages, waiting for the realities of the uh, time to come, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him, by God, by Jesus, to be, uh, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and on the day of eternity. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God bless our time together. Well, here's what I want us to do to begin. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about priorities, just so that we're on the same page as to what we mean by the term and what they look like in our lives. Priorities are something that, again, others have written on this, but priorities mean that there's some kind of uh, defined objective, some objective that we've defined to some level. We said, we want to achieve this. This is, this is an outcome we want to focus on. This is something we want to experience, a defined objective. And then we assign resources to getting after that objective. And we dedicate time to making sure it happens. So a combination of an objective, the assignment of resources, and the dedication of time. In our brains, it seems that we run these algorithms that help us to um, go through our priorities every day. That we have algorithms that we say, this is a priority for me. And so all of a sudden we start assigning resources and dedicating time. And it just runs that way. If you're from a generation that, that isn't as comfortable with the term algorithms, it's like a switchboard in which we have a, a filtering uh, switch operator that's switching between options. And something comes in and, and we decide, you know what, that needs more resource because I've got priorities going through my brain and, and I want to give the resources to this and I'll dedicate the time to that and will achieve the objectives that are important to me. Let me give a quick example. It could be that for one family, they could say, you know what, it's important for us to have family meals. That's an, an important objective, something that is of uh, uh, value to our family. And so every day they go through the day thinking about that family meal, and they'll make decisions with regard to that meal. And they'll run the algorithm, they'll, they'll play the switchboard, they'll, they'll come up and, and they gear their day around that meal. It could be that another family runs a different set of algorithms, a different switching board, and they say, all we really need is calories, because we're prioritizing something else beyond our experience here. That we're going to prioritize um, uh, going out and doing adventures together. We're going to prioritize uh, um, taking walks together and doing, doing different things. And so though we don't need to have a whole meal, all we need to do is have calories. When it comes to setting these algorithms, um, 
uh, yeah, I too am distracted by the rain. And, I, and, and also knowing that there are some people that park their car outside with the windows open. And, and so they're the ones who are, have gotten up and, and are chasing that down. It's always great. As a pastor, you're, you're going through your sermon and you're going, wait a minute, they're leaving. Um, So when it comes to the priorities, it's interesting that, that these algorithms come to us, these switchboard filters come to us in that they, um, uh, sometimes it's what we've known before. We just inherited these algorithms from our, our family of origin and we grew up with them. There are times when we simply go with the flow of the culture. It's the culture's algorithm to do this. Our, our culture uh, uh, prioritizes an education and, and to achieve this certain level of, uh, of income. And so we do the same thing and we find ourselves not really thinking about it. We just do it. Sometimes we simply set our algorithms on the feels. Like we have the feels about something. It just feels good when we do this. The worst case of this, of course, is some kind of an addiction. But it just feels we, we got we're, 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 um, uh, in a position where we just feel like it's a compulsion to achieve these things. Every now and then we might set it aside to intentionally consider what our priorities ought to be, what we want them to be, what, what we're willing to sacrifice to achieve. Now, sometimes when people intentionally think about them, they'll simply rank them like, this is my top priority, and then underneath that I have this next priority, as though they're all of the same order. They're just different in rank. They're all the same order. They're all priorities, but they're just different rank. I was reading an HBR uh, posting this past week, and this one consultant was putting out there, rather than ranking them, what if you thought about the kind that they are, the, the, and categorize these things, set them apart differently, because not every priority is the same. And so this person identified that maybe you're going to have critical priorities. And these are the things that you have to get done or consequences will hit and they'll hit hard. So you'll throw all your resources at it. You'll give it the time it needs because they're critical. Maybe there would be some important priorities. And these you're willing to twist the objective a little bit. Maybe assign fewer resources. Maybe not give it as much time. But they're important. You're still going to do it. And then there are desired priorities. We'd love to get to that, but <laughs> don't have the time or the resources, and we'll just put it on the shelf. We'll wait for some other time. Well, I want to add an additional category. A category that is deeper than the others, of a whole different order. There, I want to introduce this concept of a, an identity-level relationship. And that it establishes priorities for us. An identity-level relationship. Let me give you an example. When a man and a woman come together and they, and they get married, we, we know that the Bible says that the two become one. They're no longer one. They're, they're no, no longer two. They become one. It changes their identity. They are no longer just the individuals who came into the room, but they, they now become husband and wife. And, and the two become one. And they make this vow to each other that they're going to love each other, not just feeling, but they're going to sacrifice themselves for the other. They're going to submit themselves to the other. And they're going to cherish the other. They're going to honor them. They're going to, they're going to keep them. They're going to, they're going to do the things that, that convey value and support and seek the well-being of the other. And it's something that's not just ranked with all the other priorities. It becomes a whole new category that's, that's, that's married 
to the new identity that they have because of this new relationship that they have. Well, such is the case for all Christians. When a person says yes to God through Jesus Christ, there's something that transpires. There's something that is transformed. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 8 uh, through, through, through 20, that it says that we are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price, that our bodies become the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's an identity-level relationship. It shifts who we are. And that with that relationship, we inherit new priorities that are not simply to be ranked with all the other priorities in our life, but they're of a, of a deeper level, that they come before uh, all the other priorities. Just like in the, uh, before we begin our day, we put on clothes before we go outside. We put on these priorities before we do anything else because they're of that level. And so we have these Christian priorities before us. Now we can look in the New Testament in a number of different places and we can find these Christian priorities. Love God with all of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, to love your enemies. To forgive. To show mercy. To do justice to make disciples. We can look at a number of different places, but today we have the privilege of looking at the very end of 2 Peter. It's not uncommon in a New Testament letter that at the end of the letter there is this list of exhortations where the author says, hey, before I sign off, I want you to remember these things. Keep these things in front of you. And 2 Peter is no different. And so let's take a look at, at, at the priorities that come to us as part of this identity-level relationship. Not simply to be ranked with all the other priorities in our life, but they're married to this relationship that we have with God through Christ. Here's the first one. Make every effort to be faithful. Make every effort to be faithful. In the ESV it reads like this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, the things to come, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. The NRSV has strive to be found without spot or blemish. The New International Version has make every effort. This idea of being found without spot or blemish, this, this um, calling that we have to, it's, it's not just uh, 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 to be morally pure, but it also includes this idea of being doctrinally faithful. So I've used a bigger term that make every effort to be faithful. To be found that when Jesus returns and he, and he looks upon our lives and he goes, well done, good and faithful servant. Make every effort. Strive. Be diligent. A first order priority. This is an every day. Every moment. In Leviticus, we're told uh, that God said to his people, be holy for I am holy. Be set apart, for I am set apart. We know that First Peter picks that up as well and repeats it. So what do we do when spots and blemishes come up? And they do. In fact, if you were to look around right now and awkwardly stare at the people around you, you would be sure to find somebody who's dealing with spots and blemishes in their life. Ethical choices, moral choices, doctrinal choices that are not honoring of God. And if everybody were to awkwardly stare at you, they would find the same thing. We know that in 1 John, we find these words, 1 John 
chapter 1. It tells us, it, it helps us to know how do we deal with spots and blemishes. How do I know what to do with my spots and blemishes? In verse 8, if we say we have no sin, if we say we have no spots or blemishes, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our spots and blemishes, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a first order calling that we would come before God and say, listen, I want to make every effort. I'm going to, I'm going to strive, I'm going to be diligent to be found faithful by Jesus. It doesn't earn me salvation. I'm freely saved by God's love. Jesus died for me to set me free from my sins. But I know that left to myself, I will return to that lifestyle. I will make those decisions. I will seek my own uh, well-being my way. So God, would you forgive me? Would you restore me? I repent. I change my direction. I want to go your way instead of my way. Make every effort. To be faithful. There's something at the end of verse 14 that says that Jesus would also find us at peace. There's a bigger definition to peace. That there, there's this sense of wholeness that, that we would be found secure in our salvation. That we would, and by the way, those of us who cram for tests, those of us who are used to like the night before we get out all of our notes and we kind of go through those notes and, and we go over them over and over and we think we can get, be ready for the test. You can't do that with peace. It's not like you can show up and go, you know what, I am going to just carry anxiety my whole life and chase after every kind of notion I have. It's this calling, every effort. May I be found in my salvation. May I be found in my relationship with God. Make every effort. Strive. Be diligent. The second priority is this. Regard God rightly. Regard God rightly. We find it in verse 15. It reads like this. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you recall what we talked about last week, that there was this false teaching about there is no judgment in the end, and, and people were struggling. Why is there all this delay in, in Jesus' return? And, and they're wondering about what could God be up to. And, and we were encouraged that God desires all to be saved. And that he allows this delay, he, he, he brings this time in so that the, the good news of Jesus Christ would go forward. And to know God rightly is to know him in his love. To know him in his love. Let me give a quick example of uh, sometimes when we, when we uh, come up with a different narrative about this. By the way, we're going to be looking at knowing God rightly in the weeks to come. That's what our whole focus of the fall is on. It's to know the good and beautiful God. To know the God that Jesus knows. To love the God that Jesus loves. I have a, a white car. One of our cars is, is white. And, and just in case there's a time when uh, white cars actually look better than dark cars. We also have a dark car to <laughs> keep us humble. Um, but when you get mud on the outside of a white car, you see the mud. It shows up, and you can see the dirty car, and all of a sudden that car becomes less desirable. It still runs. It still gets the same gas mileage. It's still comfortable inside. But when you look at it, it's less desirable. I think sometimes that's the way our relationship with God goes. The narrative that we create about God. Rather than mud, we experience some kind of hardship or some kind of a struggle in our lives. Some kind of a suffering. 
and it splashes up from our perspective. It splashes up on God. And we look at it and we go, that's a less desirable God. We look at it, God hasn't changed. God is still the loving God. God is still the God who's working out salvation for all of humanity and, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that people would come to a, a, a saving faith and enjoy eternity with him forever. And yet when we look through the lens of our hardships, our mud, our, our sufferings, our mud, and, and we see that splash on God, we say that's a less desirable God. But Second Peter encourages us, regard God rightly. Regard God rightly. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Look to God for who he is. There's also some stuff in here, by the way, some fun stuff about Paul, and we don't really have time for it this morning. One of the neat things it says here, by the way, if you've ever struggled with uh, some of Paul's writings, um, you're not alone. Uh, back in the day, even the author here of Second Peter, I get you, it's hard. But one of the things he says there, is that the people who struggle and um, uh, twist what Paul writes, they do the same thing to the other scriptures. Isn't that a great little statement? The other scriptures, that already in the first century, they're seeing the writings of Paul. There's even something in 1 Tim Timothy about a gospel, that they're seeing the, the writing of the gospels, that these are right alongside with the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament. All right, the first two, make every effort to be faithful, regard God, as right, uh, regard God rightly. The third one is this, be on guard against error. Be on guard against error. We've talked about it before that new cars have these uh, extra sensors on them so that you have uh, um, uh, things like uh, um, adaptive cruise control and lane assist and, and braking so that, that if your car starts to veer outside of a lane, it, it's going to, the wheel shakes and it steers you kind of back into the center of the lane. Or, or if you get too close to the car in front of you on cruise control, it'll slow you down. These extra sensors. And so this call to be on guard against error, which we find in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawless people and lose your own stability. You know, when it comes to making errors in the Christian faith, they typically fall into one of four categories. Let me throw a chart up here on the screen. So the, the categories are like this. Jesus plus something and Jesus minus something. So Jesus plus something and, and we take content of the faith. We take our doctrine, our understanding, and we say, well, it's Jesus plus something. And so we might say that you know, it's Jesus plus the American dream. And that becomes an error. Because instead of just taking Jesus, we add the, the American dream to our doctrine. And, and we may not write it down on paper, but it becomes part of our ethos, part of our, 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 our commitment with each other. And we lift that up together. That would be an error of Jesus plus something having to do with content. Now, Jesus minus something with regard to convent, uh, content, it might be that it's Jesus minus his divinity. Uh, uh, or Jesus minus his uniqueness. And so we say that this is the way to go, that we're okay with Jesus. We like Jesus. He's pretty cool. We like his teachings, but we're going to take this away. It may be that, that with Jesus plus something, when we look at our practice, we may say, I like Jesus, but my church better have, and you fill in the blank. It, it better have pews, it better have hymns, it better be, and we add to it, it better, better have that Jesus plus something is how we're going to live our lives. 
if it's Jesus minus something, the, the top ones tend to be uh, Jesus minus sacrifice. <laughs> like, let's follow Jesus, but let's not have any of the sacrifice among us. Let's have, let's have Jesus, but let's not have that thing where we have to be witnesses. Let's have Jesus, but let's not be too generous. And so these errors are among us, it may be that they come out of blatant false teaching. Maybe someone stands up and says, yes, it's Jesus and the United States of America, or it's Jesus and being white, or it's Jesus and being whatever. Sometimes it's wolf in sheep, sheep clothing. Sometimes churches, and I've been a part of this, sometimes churches, they, we bring in things from outside in the culture, and we think, okay, we'll use this to our ends. And, and before long, it becomes a part of how we engage, and it redefines who we are. It's awfully hard in a church when you bring in edutainment, you know, where, where you, you entertain people in order to try and teach them, and, and you're feeding everybody's uh, self-sense of enjoyment, and then all of a sudden you say, and by the way, Jesus asked you to give up everything, sacrifice everything for him, pick up your cross daily and walk. It's just hard to make that switch. If it's not blatant false teaching or wolf in sheep clothing, sometimes it's just culture creep. It just finds its way into the church. If we adopt it through culture, it comes in. And so we're told, be on guard. Be on guard against error. It's all around you. It's so important. It's identity level relationship that it would become a priority that we wouldn't miss this God who loves us so much. And the fourth one is this, grow in grace and knowledge. It says in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In grammar, they talk about a genitive relationship. And when you see the word of, and you often think, and I, you probably, when we read it through the first time, you're probably thinking, there's a genitive relationship right there. And this one happens to be, and it can be interpreted in a couple different ways, but I believe it's fair to be able to interpret that this is a subjective genitive. In other words, the thing on the right side of the word of is actually the supplier of the thing on the left side of the word of. So in our case, it would be that the Lord, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is the, is the supplier of grace and knowledge. Grow in the grace and the knowledge that Jesus supplies. That we would read and reread the Gospels until we are defined by Jesus' grace and knowledge. You know when you take a sponge, like just in the kitchen sink, and you take the sponge, and let's say it's that dry old sponge that's been sitting up on the counter, and maybe you haven't used it in a day, and it's, it, it's uh, uh, empty of all moisture, and you take it and you put it underneath the faucet, and you just feel that sponge begin to soak in that water. And before long, that sponge is heavy with water. And so here the priority is set for us that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we would become heavy with him, saturated with him, that if someone were to squeeze us at all, what would come out of us is the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we have these four priorities that are set for us in this little passage that we would make every effort to be faithful, that we would regard God rightly, that we would be on guard against error, that we would grow in grace and knowledge. And so how do we do this? How do we set this apart? How do we come to understand what these are and form them in our lives so they're not just ranked with all the other priorities in our life, but we understand them at the, at the very deepest level of our identity? 
Um, it probably won't come as a surprise. In fact, Josh talked about it at the beginning of our service. We simply move in, up, and out. Now, don't, don't turn it off like I've, I've heard this before. We move in, up, and out. We move together in community. We move in toward each other. I need you to remind me of the relationship-level priorities that I'm to have with God. I need you to, to help me understand what it means to, to be on guard against error in this world. I need you to help me to, to experience the, the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We move toward each other. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have 1820 groups that are these discipleship groups. That's why we get together. We move toward each other. We also uh, go into Scripture that, that we have God's revealed Word here, and, and we trust that God's going to be transforming, so we learn and we live God's Word, that trusting He's going to transform us. We do this individually. We do this collectively. We do it on Sunday mornings. And then we move out. When we know that we're the ones that are going to be called on to be different in this world, that we have a mission in this world to represent the love of Christ then we know we need to set the relationship-level priorities. That we're ready for the calling that God has. Here I am. I'm different. I have what God has for you. It is good to be different. It is good to be different. In a world that is broken and sinful and struggling without God, with so much hate and anger and evil and selfishness and pride, to have people who would be set loose in this world to say, I'm different. Yeah, I struggle with the same things. There are a lot of things I have in common with you, but I'm different. I'm different because of Jesus Christ. And I've come to understand that here's, here's the way, here's, here's the life, here's the truth, and I want you to have it as well. It's good to be different. To, the, to be the people that adopt the very priorities of God for our lives. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful that you are the God who loves. You are the God who, who works in us, who redeems us, who sets us apart, that we would be your children in this world. We belong to you. God, you know the degree to which we've um, been rather lazy about our relationship. You know the degree to which we've simply put your priorities for our life in the list with all the other priorities. God, help us to adopt your objective for us. May we assign the time and the resources to, to engage in the very things that you want us to engage in. That we would be heavy with Jesus in this world. That we would share him. That he would flow through us to others. God, we thank you for the difference that you have made. Not only for the future, but for the here and now in each one of us. And we pray, God, that you would use that difference in us to help show your love and bring others to salvation. We give you praise. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who is indeed our Lord and our Savior. In his name, amen.